0: What's up, everybody? At long last, welcome back to Nuclear Barbarians. It is I, your Nuclear Barbarian, Emmett Penny, and I am back from hiatus. Thank you for being patient. I'm very excited for the upcoming episodes that we have. We're we're keeping it international, folks. We've got our Latin American correspondent, Juan David Rojas, back to talk about Brazil, and that's going to be a good time. And then I believe... Uh, in the next two weeks, we will have a wonderful com- conversation with a whip smart young person about nuclear in Jamaica. So keep your ears open and your eyes peeled for that in your inbox. For now, Juan, welcome back. How the hell are you?
1: Great, Emmett. Thanks for having me back on. Um,
0: I'm really excited about this. So, just so everybody knows, uh, if you want to take a look at this before, You listen to the episode. You don't have to read it beforehand, but it might help. Um, Juan has just published a piece in American Affairs called The Center that will always hold Brazil's lost decades. It's a fantastic deep dive into everything from wild high court shenanigans to industrial policy failures in Brazil. Uh, It is quite substantial. So substantial that I was like, well, we got to get him on. Um, he did a similar treatment for Mexico, uh, and that was the first time you came on. But you can find that everyone in the show notes. Uh, so definitely check that out either before or after this. Uh, for now, um, I think we need to start with some like where are we at with Brazil right now? Let me tell you what I know a little bit about what's going on uh, in Brazil. Lula's back uh, after the lava yato, or how do you ever you pronounce it? Uh, he is back. Um, also, uh, Brazil had its own version of, uh, January 6th on January you 8th, eat. uh, you know, <laughs> a year or two later. Uh, but Bolsonaro wasn't even in the country. He was doing things like eating Zabarro pizza in Florida and getting COVID for the 60th time. Um, I don't think anybody has gotten COVID more than that man. Uh, Only and- Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah <I'm low. laughs> um, And I know that uh, Petrobras um, is, insiders have leaked to Reuters that they're looking to do some more gas discovery um, and try to get some more of that stuff out of the ground. So that's sort of their next upcoming play. I don't know when they're doing that. Um, I pulled it up here so that I could talk about it. But this is from Reuters. Brazilian state-run oil company Petrobras is negotiating seven new natural gas supply contracts uh for the coming years um according to sources that told Reuters the contracts cover three gas projects and mark the latest push to reduce prices currently at around 12 million dollars per BTU. So that's what drill, I Drill baby want. drill. Drill baby drill. That's what Petrobras is up to. So fill in some gaps for me here. What are we looking at when we're looking at Brazil today?
1: All right. Well, um, yeah, as you just mentioned, Emmett, I'm sure a lot of listeners, the headlines they've seen out of Brazil recently uh, were regarding the really contentious 2022 election between the leftist Lula and right-wing Bolsonaro. Lula won, which is really historic in that uh, he was a former president. He was jailed. And now he's back again for a third term, which is really incredible. Um, Bolsonaro, you know, he bet all these lies that the election would be rigged against him. Obviously, only if he lost, if he won. Yeah, right. Right. And I uh, said that the voting machines couldn't be trusted. And uh, with, what's funny is that, you know, here, January 6th, mm-hmm. Trump was still in office
0: mm-hmm.
1: in, in Brazil, Lula was already inaugurated and the presidents were inaugurated on the 1st of January. And eight days later, Mm -hmm. thousands of Bolsonaro supporters stormed all the seats of power in the Brazilian capital. And I mean, you know, chaos is not good enough of a word. But uh, anyway, yeah, my piece uh, talks about all of that and uh, Lula, Bolsonaro, um, and how they contributed to a lot of, Brazil's recent instability and, and importantly, um, the country's deindustrialization. Mm. Uh, I was reading, uh, I, I think on Substack, Substack or one of the descriptions of the, of the podcast that industrial history is actually a component.
0: So, yeah. 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 Whenever uh, we can, this, uh, which is why I was so stoked that we could talk about <laughs> some industrial history for, for Brazil. Um, and it seems like there are some like real, Themes, not just like Latin American themes, but global themes that play out in Brazil. I know the guys over at Alpha Bunga Bunga, not just because Alex Hochuli is uh, living in Sao Paulo, um, but because Brazil and because of the Go patriots. back and forth
1: with him on, on Twitter. <laughs> some great.
0: Yeah, yeah. And, and I, um, I
1: played him in the piece. Uh, he, he,
0: yeah, yeah. His uh, excellent piece on Brazilianization. In- so it's sort of like Italy and Brazil are their touchstones for. Uh, countries that can sort of, like, help you predict the future a little bit. You know, when things base, go wrong there, they tend to... Yeah, exactly. So, prefigure what's going to happen. So, my understanding is that, uh, I mean, obviously, it still has state-run entities, Petrobras, um, et cetera, But, of course, very few have made it out of the last three decades unscathed. So, what's the... Give me the load on... How are these major... State juggernauts formed. Who formed them? What was their context?
1: Right. So, you know, you look at Brazil and of its twenty largest companies, ten either were once or are still state-owned. Petrobras is a great example of that. It's actually Brazil's largest company. Um, but so the argument I make in the the piece, which there's the kind of layers to it is that Brazil used to be a middling manufacturing power. And that's actually kind of unique in Latin America. Between uh, the 1930s until the 90s, in most cases, most countries in Latin America practice was called import substitution industrialization. What that means is that you block products that otherwise would be imported um, with um, native goods. And so it's a protectionist policy meant to promote the domestic industry. You could call it a kind of America or Brazil first type of politics. Right. That's essentially what industrial policy always means. Um, and every developed country at one point or another did ISI. The thing is that later they did free trade. But anyway, um, in most cases, unfortunately, in Latin American countries during the 20th century, they industrialized their mining agricultural and energy sectors. Mexico is a great example of this during the 20th century. It has these glorious... Uh, energy companies are so glorious now, but um, th- they were more glorious in the past, like Phoenix. But Brazil was different in that it prioritized high-value sectors in manufacturing, beeping up, for instance, its automotive and aircraft sectors, um, rather than just industrializing mining, culture, and energy. But they did do that. Um, and both of these things are important. Just that today, uh, the bulk of Brazil's economy is focused on... Uh, mining, agriculture, oil, Mm. uh, et cetera. But you need, in order to become a rich country to develop, you need both of these things. You need a Petrobras because heavy industry needs energy. And this is why someone like Petro in my native Colombia is really stupid, at least on that. (laughs) But uh, since the nineties in Brazil, there have been these discrete decisions by policymakers to shun industrial policy and manufacturing; and instead promote those same extractive sectors. Uh, in addition to small business and construction, um, and the result today is that Brazil still has a comparatively strong manufacturing sector compared to the rest of Latin America, country like say, Peru. But the share of the economy in manufacturing is much much less than it was in the past. Um, and depending on the specific sector, it's either stagnant or shrinking. Um, hmm. Instead, most of Brazil's economy today, like they said, it consists of exporting primary products, both mineral and agricultural. Soy um, is uh, and oil are, and so this is the result of you know an elite consensus, often called neoliberalism. The narrative you hear from economists regarding Brazil and Latin America overall is that. ISI SI was malicious and a failure, bred cronyism and corruption, kept flow of industries that wouldn't survive otherwise. And you know, some of that is true. Uh, but so the solution was that government can pick winners and losers, get government out of the way and let the market right. do
0: work. And trim the fat, right? Yeah. That yeah. sort of, yeah, get it a meaner, more little leaner, little meaner.
1: Yeah, it's theoretically
0: yeah. more efficient.
1: But the thing is, the, and they never talk about this. You look at it in economic growth, and almost all of these countries would like double the current rate of the past 20, 30 years. Um, and there's still cronies. If anything, it's worse. And the, the economy of a country like Brazil is far less diversified than it was in the past. It's more prone to shocks and fluctuations in commodity prices. All of this is to say that, um, and this is kind of the conclusion that I want to hear from home that industrial policies are. Uh, you know, when it is successful, it takes not years, but decades. But in my opinion, we have a duty to try to boost strategic sectors and companies. To me, the whole state versus market dichotomy doesn't really make sense. I mean, you can have industrial policy with private companies, obviously. That's what we're doing with uh, like the CHIPS Act and the inflation reduction. Um, But you definitely need a, a strategy. And, you know, it turns out when you just leave the market alone to do its work, sometimes the results are that great.
0: Hmm. Fascinating. Yeah. I mean, it's such a devastating blow to go from having a thriving uh, mid manufacturing sector to just doing energy and resources. I mean, an energy resource economy is like highly vulnerable because you're totally dependent on your buyers, basically, you know, and if they're having a bad time, you're having a really bad time um, because they're demand destruction is growth destruction for you. You know, there's no uh cushion uh to sort of keep you stable. So, all right, let's talk let's talk about like some of what what goes down here. Um let's talk about nuclear in Brazil. I want to know about that. You tell yeah. me about that, man. I don't know anything about nuclear in Brazil uh and so I really want to know. Oh, tell man. me the story.
1: Okay. Perfect. Um well, you we are on the Nuclear Barbarians podcast, so I, I think it's definitely appropriate. I did a lot That's of research right. for th- this topic.
0: Oh, man, I appreciate it. Uh, first,
1: to give some background, and this will be useful for all the companies that we talk about, you look at industrialization in Brazil, and everything goes back to um, kind of like we talked about in Mexico with uh, Macedo Cárdenas. In Brazil, an equally important figure, figure is Getúlio Vargas, who was a really fascinating figure. He was both a democratic president and a dictator at one point, and kind of straddled the line between being kind of like a right-wing fascist, honestly, when he, while he was a dictator. And, and he, like Lula, came back for a third term. He was democratically elected, and during that term, he was kind of like a left-wing populist. But he said on the, yeah the period of... Um, ISI policies in the form of tariff protection, managed trade, uh, sectoral unionization, a state development bank, um, state-owned steel companies, uh, uh, state-owned oil firm Petrobras, and um, in, the, in a lot of these cases, so in the long term, these industries were all successful. The, the one case of a serious failure of industrial policy, unfortunately, is in uh, nuclear um
0: hard sector to get right
1: yeah yeah and unfortunately the really what did end the sector was uh, incompetence to be honest there was a lot of scandals and, and the scandals were twofold on the one hand there were a lot of accidents and problems in the handling of nuclear materials not even just relating to nuclear power just like mining and, and stuff like that mm-hmm. um and related to a uh, nuclear prol- proliferation for nuclear weapons because of the the um, uh, military dictatorship was key in developing the nuclear industry and in, in a lot of industry overall in Brazil.
0: Gotcha. Okay. But so
1: during Vargas' uh, presidency, uh, a really interesting dude, a uh, listeners should check out also, the guy called Alvaro uh, Alberto da Mota Silva. He was a vice admiral and, in- and Brazilian inventor who was on Brazil's uh, National Security Council called the GSM. And he had a number of pro- proposals that Vargas approved to begin investigating, researching, and acquiring materials and technologies for um, the development of the nuclear industry was approved in 53. Um, and a related government agency, that's a whole alphabet suit of agencies involved in all of this, um, sought to acquire nuclear attacks from the U.S. and other developed countries. A long-standing partnership started with West Germany the last decades. Uh, one of Vargas' successors, Juscelino um, Kubitschek, he, he uh, actually under him Brasilia was built. He founded the um, National Nuclear Energy Commission, uh, as well as the um, gotcha. Atomic Energy Institute in São Paulo, then had um, Brazil, the, the Brazil's first reactor, which is the first to uh, enter operation in the Southern Hemisphere.
0: Well, so that's probably like a test reactor, right? I'm guessing yeah, yeah. for yeah, okay.
1: And uh, one of the problems was that, you know, countries like the U.S. didn't want you know, Brazil and other countries. I mean, you know, still, we, you know, we don't, we're trying to thwart Iran and whatnot, but this is historical. Um, developed countries kind of had a suspicious eye on anyone who wanted to develop a nuclear industry. Mm-hmm. Um, and the next progress that Brazil saw in nuclear came uh, when um, the military took over in '64. Uh, they ramped up re- research and development in nuclear, and that caused a lot of friction with the US because the military refused to sign off on the nonproliferation treaty. And they had a Cold War mentality, you know, and mm-hmm. the, uh, the national security concern. They wanted to develop nuclear, and they had a bit of a rivalry and arms race with Argentina, which was doing the same. Um, I, I wrote this down at a national security meeting. One of the military dictu- dictators at the time, Costa and Silva, Uh, He uh, said, he's a voice of argument, said, doing research, mining and building devices that can explode. And added, we will not call them bombs. We will call them devices that can explode.
0: (laughs) I love it. So I didn't know about this whole arms race between Argentina and Brazil. That is fascinating that those two countries um, were competing for nuclear arms with each other. Uh, and I love the devices that explode line. That's yeah. I, I, I love. That's oh, such a great workaround. You know, uh, <laughs> uh, the pure political ease. So um, it
1: it's it kind of better. Um, and then I, later, Brazil and Argentina agreed to cooperate and in sharing information on nuclear. Uh, in the seventies, there were the, the you know the the energy and oil shocks. And that catalyzed a lot of further interest in developing nuclear on the grounds of energy sovereignty. Um, a contract with Westinghouse and the uh, U.S. Atomic Energy Commission was approved in seventy-one um, for the supply of nuclear fuel for Brazil's first uh, nuclear plant, Anga One, which is located in Rio. Um, and in seventy-four, a nuclear Bras, which was the state-owned nuclear company, was founded. In that same year. India tested its first uh, nuclear weapon, and that really caused a panic in uh, the U.S. And Hugh Carter took over later. He was really stringent on not wanting to support nuclear anywhere yeah. uh, outside of the U.S. Brazil then turned to France and uh, Germany. And um, West Germany committed to export um, e reactors over the course of 15 years. This was really significant at the time of a transfer from a developed country to a developing one. Um, And in cooperation with West Germany, Brazil's second reactor, ANGRA-2, began in 1976. Ten years later, ANGRA-1 was finally finished in 1985. Mm. And yes, this is to give you an idea of some of the problems. Between 82 and 92, uh, ANGRA was halted 16 times for a load of different reasons. Oh
0: boy, Uh, that is a... Off record. That is the yeah, top record. Yeah, Westinghouse
1: itself actually saw the send that they thought their investment was a poor decision. And due to the constant interruptions, um, Brazilians called the, the plan a bagalumi, a firefly.
0: Oh, man. So just a real quick on, on the India one. So around the 70s, this is an interesting note when Carter was like, we're not doing nuclear anymore. You know, nu- uh, India was into in de- testing like that. India was also powerfully interested, as it is today, in civilian nuclear. Yep. And one American senator was hell-bent to make sure that India never got it, and that was Ed Markey. Hmm. And he did everything in his power to make sure, and he wrote a whole book on it out of print. Oh. Yeah, that was his victory lap about stopping the construction of civilian nuclear wherever he could in the developing world. So I forget what it's called, but you can sort of like, it's like one of those things where you can only like look at the cover on Amazon used, and like every six months, like a used copy can show up. i been meaning to pick it up, but very interesting. Yeah. So look. that's just a nice little little detail there. Uh, so back to this Firefly. I take it the industry is not super beloved in Brazil. Um, well,
1: we, and actually, this is the part of the the podcast where I'm going to have to excuse myself, Emmett. Uh, with you, because I feel this might be a poor taste on a nuclear <laughs> <laughs> a podcast. I'm going to talk about some of the accidents.
0: No, 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 please, we must. The, yeah.
1: Um, if you haven't heard about the Goyas incident, it's mm-hmm. called Brazil's Chernobyl. I definitely recommend you look into it, listeners, as well. It is this insane um, t- t- case in the city of Goiás is kind of a, a central uh, the capital of the central state in Brazil. This is really, I'm just going to say, it's been a republic. So. And what's yeah. funny is that it, um, it actually doesn't even relate directly to nuclear power. No, not even at all to, to nuclear power. In 1985, a hospital in the city of Goias left um, a radiology capsule filled with cesium-137 you know, this was used to treat like cancer patients that blast a controlled dose mm-hmm. of the cesium uh, for the treatment. And they relocated. Um, and for two whole years, this cesium was sitting there. There's like a correspondence of some people working at the hospital. They're like, hey, we left the cesium back there. Probably do something about that. Uh, <laughs> Probably go get it. <laughs> and then some people were taken to jail. Uh, They posted a security guard there to make sure no one, uh, you know, got into the abandoned hospital. But it just so happened that one day in 1987, the security guard didn't show up. And these two burglars, they're sometimes called scavengers, went into the abandoned hospital, found the capsule, thought it was something valuable. And uh, took it home, started trying to pry it open. They started throwing up and they were like, oh, yeah, we probably ate something. They got it up and they found this beautiful blue shining powder inside. We're like, wow. Uh, Sold it to the scrapyard guy. Um, And uh, he uh, brought it home and his daughter thought it was like a beautiful berry dust. She like uh, put it on in like her hair and uh, like her brother, like put it over her chest. She died. and uh, the, the the burglar is also one of them. Like his his uh, hands reportedly swelled up like the size of like a bowling ball. Um, but they actually incredibly survived. Anyway, uh, just like you know, being passed around through the town, um, something like a hundred and something people were thought to have come in contact with it. Eventually, um, I think the the mother the the wife of the the scrapyard guy realized that it was the 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 cesium,
0: yeah. And
1: she went to a hospital. Someone at the hospital realized that this was radioactive, but the guy was kind of like, what the hell is going on? Where is this little...
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, man.
1: And uh, this caused you know, a national panic. The entire town was shut down. Around 120,000 people were came, hurried into the stadium and tested. And cleaned up, scraped down. Um, only four people died, but I mean, uh, for and, uh, the last terrible thing about this, when the girl that um, uh, died was being buried, the town people came out to protest. Not because they were upset that she died; they didn't want her being buried because they thought she was radioactive. Uh, oh, oh
0: right, yeah. I mean, I imagine that uh, you know. Information on radioactivity is pretty low. All you know is that it's scary and related yeah, to yep. the enormous bombs. It's already had this effect, shutting down the town, has only ratcheted up the fear. You know, uh-huh. ev- everybody has mishandled this in almost every single way that they could. Yeah,
1: yeah, and and um, you you talked about this. I mean, yeah, in in the U.S. be obviously in Brazil, the nuclear industry isn't always honest or good at mm-hmm. educating people about. Yeah, exactly how this stuff works, but um, yeah. Later, like people were taken to trial over this, and um, I, I think um, one of the nuclear agencies was sued because they didn't dispose properly of the cesium. But it's funny, yeah, because it doesn't relate directly to nuclear energy, but it's definitely mismanagement of nuclear materials. On top of that, there were a lot of problems. Yeah, that I mentioned, number one, and. Uh, A year before in 86, something like 20,000 liters of radioactive water leaked from the plant. Um, This is a huge scandal. This happened again in 2001. Uh, I won't go into some of the other cases, but uh, yeah, the mining of nuclear materials was also really problematic.
0: Yeah, I'm sure if that's how uh, they handled uh, a small cesium problem, (laughs) that the way that they handled uh, mining was not the best. So, okay, what I see here is that we have sort of an industrial failure that centers around uh, major political problems in Brazil that has to do with lack of accountability and trust between government, major industries, and the people. Um, that all sounds like a huge bummer and sort of par for the course. Like I said, getting a nuclear industry right is really, really hard. As you can tell, even the most developed countries in the world have mishandled their own nuclear industries and they've been on the back foot for all sorts of reasons. But let's, uh, let's sort of like move around the industrial sector here. Um, what, what, when, um, oh, yeah.
1: What, what, what's the, just the, the close of the loop on, uh, on nuclear. Um, I, and as I mentioned before, another thing that um, kind of derailed it. Uh, was the fact that there was this uh, like secret program for nuclear weapons. Uh, Um, Funnily enough, in the 80s, the head of um, one of the nuclear agencies traveled to communist China and, you know, for the right wing military dictatorship at the time to get enriched uranium from Chinese counterparts. And when um, uh, civilian rule was reestablished in 85, uh, there was a lot of commissions that investigated the staff, and um, a lot of revelations really discredited the industry. Uh, in the '90s, Brazil's first democratically elected president was impeached over corruption scandals. But anyway, uh, he, <laughs> it for a link to our conversation, he kicked off a spree of mass privatizations, um, contributed to deindustrialization, uh, and he renounced nuclear power. He said that the plants that were there could be kept. Um, but no further uh, development of nuclear would be had. And um, Angara 2 was finally finished in 2001. And Lula actually then um, launched a new nuclear energy plan. He tried to, to revive the program under his government in, in 2010, a third plan at Angra uh, started being built in 2010. Unfortunately, still hasn't been finished. I saw somewhere that at one point it was supposed to be finished this year, but that hasn't happened. Yeah. And um, the end result of all of this is that Brazil, 3% of its energy comes from nuclear and actually half of Rio's because of the the two plants oh, right yeah. come from nuclear power. In a way, you could argue that it's still a success and that Brazil has nuclear power, whereas mm-hmm. the rest of Latin America doesn't. But I mean, that's not saying much.
0: Yeah, yeah. Your mileage may vary. So, okay. <laughs> That is, that is, uh, God, what a twisting, turning tale. Yeah. Um, man. Okay. So let's, let's pivot to another industrial sector, one that nuclear is intimately related to. Let's talk about Eletrobras, which is another one of these state behemoths um, that, of course, as it did in America, as it has in Japan, as it has in Australia, as it has all over Europe runs into restructuring right around the 90s. Um, tell tell me the tale of electrobrutus.
1: The 90s electrical group thing.
0: Yeah. So, you know, nuclear is
1: kind of an exceptional and will be exceptional in our conversation in that, you know, by design, nuclear has to be, there has to be an industrial policy for nuclear. You're not going to have a mom and shop, mom and pop shop, you know, yeah. nuclear uh you know, gig that's going to get up and running and, you know, power a whole country. Uh, but in the case of the other companies that we're going to talk about, there's a um, the kind of a dichotomy in that some of these are a success of the state or of industrial policy, and then are also a success of like market reforms or failures of the market. Electrobras was uh, definitely a success of industrial policy, but a failure of the free market. And so, had you referenced... Um, First, uh, some history, the company was founded in 62 by João Goulart, one of Vargas's democratic successors. He was the president that was overthrown by the military dictatorship. Um, and this took time, as with all these other companies, but a really successful utility succeeded in lowering electricity prices for ordinary Brazilians below uh, rates of the global average. Um, but beginning in the '90s and '95, the Brazilian government privatized the electricity sector, and it still it still kept some control and a uh, majority control in Electrobras. But um, the idea was, you know, let's open this up to competition. Let's have the state-owned company compete with um, other companies, or at least the different chains of the the uh, grid and distribution, or whatever. And um, Uh, You know, this will be more efficient. Well, in the electricity sector, that doesn't work that way. Actually, competition creates more regulation and makes it more inefficient. It's a natural monopoly. That doesn't make sense. So, yeah, just a year later, prices rose 15%. And by 2006, they increased by 200%. Oh, my God. And so, some some
0: estimates
1: today, Brazil is having a... Uh, some of the highest electricity prices in, in the world. The, this, the Brazil State Development Bank, the Bani Desi, uh, describes itself as a privatization as a failure. And um, last year under Bolsonaro, they doubled down and said, you know, you know what the problem was? We didn't privatize enough. So enough. they, they yeah. sold off even more of the company. Now the government has a... Uh, this became an electoral issue. Actually, um, the government only had the 40% share of the company and they, they said that um, this would reduce uh, electricity bills by a whole seven percent, and obviously prices have gone up. It's not certain, you know. I mean, there's been the Ukraine war and other stuff. Sure,
0: but they, there's a lot of noise in that data. Yeah,
1: if, if that's it. But Lula came out against it, said he wanted to renationalize Uh but um, actually the under Bolsonaro they put a, uh, they put up a lot of conditions. That um, a, mm. a huge fine would have to be paid if the company is renationalized, kind of sinister.
0: Yeah, it's 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 uh, it's in the billions too, right? Mm. It's something like twenty billion, between yeah, fifteen yeah. and twenty billion, something like that, which is steep. You're basically saying like you have to pay this blood debt if you want, <laughs> on top of whatever it costs to buy back these assets. Um, and nobody wants to be like, okay, day one. I'm going to sink a bunch of political capital and actual capital exactly. to do something exactly. that I'm not sure will work, even if it's something that I want. So, yeah, I need to find somebody who can do a whole global restructuring task. I've yet to find the general global electricity historian. Maybe I'll have to become one. Um, but did I'm very fascinated.
1: He, well, like which companies, uh, which countries didn't like privatize their electricity sectors and compare them it's like hey and yeah, look this is definitive please don't do this
0: yeah or you know i mean when you look at europe there's also like um there's the eu market and then there's like what each country has within it and so you get weird stuff sort of like the united states in that way you have like traditional utility areas or public utility areas that are inside of these larger market structures so it's a very uh, tricky tapestry um but it's not it's not all for nothing. We've had some successes, right? In Brazil, some things mm-hmm. have gone right. Um tell me about those. What's uh what's one of the ones we can talk about? Uh, okay. let me see if I can pronounce this right, right? Uh what's it called? Embraer?
1: Yes, that's exactly right. All right. Embraer is the shining success story not just of Brazil, but all of Latin America. It is wow. E- um, at Embraer manufactures, uh, planes for okay. both Brazil's military and in the commercial sector. It's a high value manufacturing company that competes with multinational competitors uh, like Bombardier, Canadian company around the world. It is profitable, successful. I mean, it's, it's the, you know, the goal I think is that, you know, every place would be nice as other countries like Colombia and Mexico had some kind of company equivalent. Mm. And, and that said, unfortunately, Embraer um, is still like, it, it, compared to Brazil's largest company, it's, I think it's like the 20-something, 30th biggest company in Brazil. But um, um, But it's an important company. It was founded in 1969 by the Brazilian Air Force during the military dictatorship. And you know, it uh, its initial goals were linked to national defense for the military. Obviously, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of the uh, uh, background goes back and always to Vargas and some of the uh, institutes for aviation. Um, of those military going back to the 30s, uh, but so um, it, it, again. It took decades to become profitable and successful. Initially, military rule insulated the company from special interests, and state protection meant that the company could survive, yeah, on communism, for many years on subsidies despite being unprofitable. But the the thing is, the subsidies had a strategic goal in mind, to improve production and and um, research and learning through trial and error over time allowed the company to um develop its own models for regional mid-sized jets that later turned out to be really competitive and what's interesting is this when um Embraer was first, it was privatized in the 90s in uh, 94 and it had to be put up for auction i think five times and on the sixth it was finally sold it was viewed as so um um undesirable uh, because of its financials that it took so long to sell it um yeah and, and um the new ownership they uh i had like a shock doctrine they slashed wages to unionize a lot of the workforce outsource a lot of the workforce um eliminated around half of it in 95 but kind of by chance um because they made that early and in, earlier investment in mid-sized jets now was the sector that took off during the nineties, the company became hugely uh successful so um chance is a big part of it, but uh privatization did help um for collaboration with the uh, multinational private companies but um you know i mean uh, an important thing also is that the uh, the military and the government kept a, a golden share. Mm. That means that they have a, a seat as the permanent seat of the company's board, in permanent ownership, partial ownership of the company. It wasn't completely uh, privatized initially. The state was stipulated that um, foreign ownership couldn't exceed more than forty percent. The military was really key mm. uh, to not have the, the the company be completely sold out. And sure, you know the truth is that if they completely sold out the company, there's little reason to believe that it would have survived as a Brazilian company it would have been yeah,
0: likely. it would have been something something of else. Yeah.
1: Bombardier or Boeing or Wells.
0: Yeah, no doubt. I think it's um, it's such a fascinating story. And so if I'm hearing you correctly, basically the before privatization, they had invested a lot in midsize size Jets and Jet engines. And then they get bought at auction we see the typical deunionization outsourcing slashing um putting things into deals with contractors rather than being totally vertically integrated um but it is that pre privatized investment that pays off
1: exactly
0: if, okay, cool. I just want to make sure I had the timeline right because that is a really interesting twist of events that's a nice twist of fate yeah, yeah. yeah i mean
1: it's it's, it's pure look, and this will come up later. The thing is. Um, because privatization was done on purely ideological grounds, because I'm not actually completely against privatization. I think there are moments where it makes sense. Sure, um, uh, It's just that because it's not done like strategically, it's just not ideologically, it means that no matter what in the 90s, you know, these companies would be privatized. Right. If they don't have their shit together at the moment of privatization, they're going to get destroyed. <laughs> right, right. It's happy case that previous investment really... Uh, paid off and um, to give some uh, a recent history I, I mentioned this in the piece horribly Bolsonaro was in the military and he's really proud of Brazil's armed forces one of the first things he did was sell off Ibraera to Boeing, Boeing acquired a huge
0: part no of it. way
1: I- Ibraera still survived again by chance because Boeing couldn't go through with the acquisition in 2020 because of the, the COVID pandemic
0: Yeah. Oh man, that is wild, yeah. son! Wow, how crazy! So, so they still have their golden share? They still have their forty percent, or what? Yeah,
1: yeah. Uh, I, I think you know, you know, over time, it's been reduced, I'm but sure, had the, yeah, the government still has some ownership.
0: Okay, wow. Okay, all right. And then let's talk about what we started with, right? I brought about some news about Petrobras. Everybody knows that natural gas is sort of the big deal right now. I'll be interested to see if Petrobras. Uh, not only do they want to cater the domestic side, but everybody wants LNG now. I don't know what they're thinking about there. Um, I don't know if you know. But before we can even touch on that, we need the story, dog. The big so boy. So let's have it. Yeah, the big boy.
1: The big boy, Petrobras. Again, and this one goes directly back to Vargas. Vargas, like... Um... Cardenas in in Mexico, we talked about last night, he nationalized the oil sector. He Mm -hmm. and found and um, Petrobras was founded in 53 in in his uh, third term. And um, this was important, but not quite as momentous um, Mm -hmm. as in uh, Mexico. You know, in Mexico, the Pemex is really key to the Mexican psyche. It's a bit different in Brazil.
0: Yeah, they got a holiday for Cardenas there.
1: Uh huh. But uh, Petrobras. Again, it took years to become profitable. Um, it, it wasn't profitable until the 1980s. So, this took decades. Okay. Brazil's oil reserves are located offshore in deep sea wells that are really difficult to access with the technology from back then. As a result, they had to heavily invest in exploration related research since the 50s. And then, eventually, you get to the 80s, 90s, uh, 2000s, uh, the company finally took off. By the 2000s, Petrobras had more more patents than um, any other Brazilian institution. And today is Brazil's largest company. It's extremely profitable and has investments and partnerships all over the world. If you go to a lot of countries in Latin America, you'll see Petrobras pumps. Um, And all of this kind of, despite the huge scandal that the company had, during the 2010s with the, as you mentioned, the Lava Jato investigations and the-
0: Lava Jato, that's what it is. The
1: scandal, the kickback Yeah.
0: So, so for, I think I have many uh, Anglo or at least American listeners, though I do have a high amount of people from all over the world. So happy about that. Happy to have a very international podcast here over at Nuclear Barbarians. But that means the car wash, which I love is a turn of phrase for a corruption scandal. And you have some great details in your piece about uh, L- Lava Jato. Um, I found myself actually laughing at certain junctures because it is so ridiculous. So, how, like, can you encapsulate what happens with Petrobras and Lava Jato for us?
1: Yeah, okay. Where to begin? Yeah, where to begin? So, it's, yeah, called, where, where to begin? <laughs> it's called Operation Car Wash because they were laundering a lot of the stolen money at... Um, at um uh, a car station, the pumps. Uh, you know, the scheme was that uh, uh, construction and in- infrastructure projects for Petrobras, which the companies that built this out were Brazil's construction companies Odebrecht is the most famous, but others like OAS, um and Camargo uh, Poheo. Anyway, uh, they uh were well, were, You know, this is a classic scheme. You uh, um, skim up the top from overproduction, so you say, "Okay, I'm going to build, you know, whatever this building, Uh, and it's set to cost this much." Whoops! It it ended up costing double, and I get to keep half of that excess amount.
0: Yes, of course. And so
1: a lot of this was a lot of this corruption um, uh, was kind of used to keep the incumbent government afloat. Uh, the kickbacks were ridiculous. It all came crashing down because um, Brazil before 2012 didn't have plea bargaining. And that proved really key. Through plea bargaining, they, they were able to arrest some of these uh, company executives um, and get them through the pleas to reveal key information that allowed them to take down a lot of the operation.
0: Man. And so this were downs through... Um Not
1: the simplified version, but it, it, it's, you know, it's
0: no no no. I think that's great. And so this this sort of like reverberates through this is basically how they start going after Lula um and his whole establishment. You have some great stuff in here. I don't think we have time for it now. Again, people, you have to read it because like the description of like how Brazilian politics works, it there it is just so alien. It's the American system. You think it's bad
1: here; it's way worse
0: there. Yeah, that like rough compare that even rough comparisons don't really make sense at an institutional level. But basically, um, that corruption scandal allows launches uh, the um, the whole sort of insurgent right uh, in Brazil, and it's a big uh, Bolsonarismo show. uh, And Bolsonaro, of course, show up. And they're like, we're going to handle this corruption. That is not what happens. They, he gets co-opted by this, uh, this entity, the Brazilian Center uh, which you do a great job of describing. But um, let's talk about uh, where does that leave after all of this, right? Because we've had this big dent in Lula. He's in prison. Now he's back. He's back, baby. Uh, Bolsonaro is uh, doing whatever he's doing. Uh, still uh, kind of exists, but the
1: big news is that last week he was stripped by the Supreme Court, the the Electoral Court specifically, of his political rights. He can't run for office for eight years. Pretty much, media dead. He's done.
0: Wow, it is over. And so, but I know that there are still people that are basically like. Similarly, we still have. uh, No matter what happens to Donald Trump, we will still have Trump loyalists, right? uh mm-hmm. trumpism will live on right mm-hmm. uh you can kill the man but not the idea Juan yeah. is what i'm trying to tell you um so let's let's sort of update all of this what are we looking at in brazilian energy and industry today after all of this fanfare
1: so you know um i've actually been a bit surprised because Lula obviously was really big, and Petrobras in and energy, actually, um, you know, he was a former union leader. Uh, uh, yeah, really, uh, Petrobras exploded in the 2000s. He authorized a ton of projects, and um, I had a feeling that his in his third term he would be a little bit more hostile to the oil sector, you know, because there's all this push for renewables mm-hmm. and uh, climate ideology, which I, I, I'm sympathetic to. I'm just, I just hate it when it's stupid. <laughs> uh, you, you, yeah. Uh, Petro before, but um, uh, Ben and Berl- Lula's message, one of his core pages during the election was uh, on environmentalism, on mm-hmm. the Amazon and combating climate change. And actually amazingly, some other great news that came out days ago or last week, with his administration, he has managed to cut deforestation already in his first six months six months by thirty percent.
0: Wow, that's fantastic! Good for him. Yeah, that's
1: yeah, wonderful. Fantastic. But uh, while doing that, he has authorized a ton of, of energy projects, including with Petrobras. A lot of which are um have been really pissed off environmentalists. I uh, send you an article in uh, a Brazilian newspaper. I don't know if you got the chance to see. Oh,
0: yeah. Remind me.
1: I I was trying to, um, you would have had to use like Google Translate, but the translation I thought was actually pretty good. But he just listed a number of projects that uh, Lula authorized, including like a highway through the Amazon, um, Um, uh, drilling uh, for Petrobras near the mouth of the Amazon, which that one actually does seem kind of controversial. Um, But most of them seemed innocuous to me, seemed good and probably. Well, it will help the country, but, uh, you know, environmentalists were just losing their oh, shit. Oh,
0: I'm sure. I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> how could you? Well, there's no pleasing them. So, that I mean, it heartens me to hear that. It heartens me to hear that sort of like AMLO uh, isn't uh, alone in mm-hmm. um, supporting the state oil thing. I mean, he's got a whole – people can go back and listen to our episode on that. You really should because the situation that Pemex is in is not easy. And I'm sort of betting big on a hometown. Uh, what we all hope is not a vanity project, <laughs> you know, so uh, that's a really interesting tale. But what's when we look at the whole Latin American scene with industry and energy, like, are there any trends that uh, us energy people and industry people want to be aware of that you're noticing?
1: Well, let's let's go over to the other side. Really reprehensible case. OK. Petro in Colombia.
0: Yeah, I was, like, I was like, I feel like we're getting some foreshadowing about who we're <laughs> going to talk about. So who's Petro for, for listeners that don't know?
1: He's uh, the current president of Colombia. He's Colombia's first leftist president Colombia, famously um, uh, only just uh, elected a, well, a leftist. It was historically a really right-wing uh,
0: mm-hmm. country.
1: Um, and he actually has a message that's really similar to Lula and An uh, in uh, a lot of ways, he's a left wing nationalist and prioritizes industry, he hasn't really gone anywhere during his uh, current um, government. But uh, unfortunately, it, it's kind of mixed up in that while he like wants uh, Colombia to industrialize, uh, he also just despises its energy sector. It's oil sector specifically. He has for um, yeah. further oil exploration, uh, and that is really, really uh, killing off interest from investors. It, it's it's dumb because he has this maniacal attitude that's like, well, we're going to be dead in 12 years, you know, classic stuff.
0: We need to do yeah, yeah.
1: everything possible and invest in renewables. It's like, dude, Colombia like, gets a ton of its energy from hydroelectric dams and, like... Yeah. Uh, it, what are you worried oil, about? The state oil company, like there's an argument there that most of uh, the country's um, finances, the the revenues for the government come from that company. Uh, and that makes it really vulnerable to oil shocks. But, you know, if you just try to kill it off, it just makes things worse. Yeah,
0: and- especially if you're not offsetting that with some other type of investment. I also see that he's really uh, brought the hammer down. I think I remember reading this. I don't know if we've talked about it, but he's I've talked to another Colombian friend of mine about this. Um uh but he's really come down on coal mining as well. Yeah. Um yeah. in the in the country. Um,
1: to be fair, in is really unpopular to, in the the country. Um even some of the right wing candidates last year I remember came out against it. Maybe the revere that in the end, but
0: yeah, is there a reason for that? Like it's like I can so I can understand because coal um just uses a ton of land. And uh, there, I get why someone would be like, okay, we'll do oil, we'll do this, but we won't do coal. Um, I can understand that. But to say we won't do fracking, I mean, I have an American bias towards fracking. I'm like, it's great. What are you worried about? Uh, so what's, what's the concern in Colombia?
1: I haven't looked too much into it really deeply, but I imagine that the, the point that's always raised, always raised is that it contaminates the water. I gotcha. uh, imagine that the way it's been done probably hasn't been up to par. So yeah, yeah there's a lot of animosity from local communities again.
0: Okay, I, I can get that. I'm not going to speak on the Colombian situation of what they should or shouldn't do with fracking because um, I don't know how their particular industry handles it. Uh, I think that's very interesting. And so, yeah. Petro seems to have some very strange ideas. He was very hard on the renewables, climate apocalypticism. Is he alone yeah. in Latin America with that, or there are others like him?
1: Uh, yeah, you know, it, it, it's it's funny. There is definitely a mix. Right now, uh, most of Latin America's leaders are on the left. Don't hold your breath. Conservatives that are listening, this will change. Give it a few years.
0: <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> uh, there are, yeah, leaders like Petro and um, Boric in Chile who are hard. On. I don't know as much about Chile. I don't know if Boric is outright hostile to, like, the oil sector, for instance. Mm-hmm. And Chile is really big on mining. So I think he just kind of had been forced to authorize a lot of yeah. that. But um, who else? Oh, uh, yeah. Oh, is is a drill baby drill guy. So, I mean. Yeah, he
0: loves it. He loves it. And even after we talked, um, uh, Pemex and has, uh, or not Pemex, the, uh, um, what's the electric company, the national electric company? Uh, CFP. CFP has bought up even more uh, yeah. foreign assets, right? Mm-hmm. So, the foreign owned assets. So, they are sort of centralizing a lot of stuff right now. So, um. I mean, I think it'll be interesting, like Latin American politics uh, stays surprising and also completely unsurprising at the same time. Um, It's got that nice parallax quality going on to it, to it.
1: In uh, Argentina, they they, um, have been moving forward with that uh, Vaca Muerta project, which um, you might know more about. It's... um, uh, what is it? Is it an LNG or is it like? A, a...
0: Oh, right, right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I think it's an LNG terminal. I haven't seen anything about it in a while, but I know that they're going ahead with some projects.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, um, in for instance, Bolivia, the the really hard left Bolivian government is really uh, into the national gas, uh, the natural gas sector, and um, is that actually yeah, kind of hostile to the renewables?
0: That's fascinating. Yeah, I think. I really think that we're going to see a lot of that. I think that, um, so my just sort of licking my finger and sticking it out and seeing where the wind blows thing going right now is that we're going to see a lot of countries all over the world, depending on where they are, get really friendly with either coal or with gas. If they have big gas reserves and they have the industry to do it, I think they're going to get down with it. If they were in the situation like Pakistan or uh, any of these other countries that really felt the bite of Western hypocrisy in the LNG market last year, they're going to double down on either coal and or nuclear. That's what they're going to do because they want things that have fuel on site, that are abundant, local, and they don't have to worry about Germany coming in and buying them out of the goddamn market after swearing up and down that they're not going to commit to fossil fuels like that. I think that's a very painful lesson to have to learn and nobody wants to learn it twice. So that's uh, everybody that is a firm opinion loosely held. Uh, Of course, all predictions are fragile. I thought it'd be interesting,
1: yeah, if we uh, talked about like comparing PEMEX to Petrobras, there's some interesting things.
0: Yeah, please do. I'd love to hear a little bit more about that because I think, uh, I mean, it's sort of like you have two great test cases to contrast and compare.
1: Yeah, yeah, so, um, uh, going back to the the theme the the framework that we had uh Petrobras was a yeah, definitely a success of the state, but you could also describe it as a success of the market uh, conversely, pemex was a success of industrial policy and less so with uh, uh, market reforms um so both are both display what I would call Good industrial policy, hashtag good industrial policy.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, but, um, hey, yeah, Pemex definitely it shows a, a bad case of free trade in like, what do I mean by that? So good industrial policy is like when, okay. okay you condition support on results. You know, we talked about this last time with Pemex, the strategy that was used, Petrobras did something similar. It's usually you use either subsidies or tax breaks, and you say, "Look, I will cut your taxes if you increase oil production, and so over time that you reward that good behavior with um the subsidy or whatever it is uh yeah bad industrial policy is just the yeah you 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 feed a company that isn't going anywhere forever
0: yeah, it's loyalty, not results uh-huh
1: but um at the same time there isn't a point where free trade can be smart or market reforms can be smart. When you know that the company is capable of competing with the um, foreign multinationals, it, it actually might make sense to have it compete with the uh, foreign competitors. Um, interestingly, you know, you could describe PEMEX as a kind of victim of its own success. We talked about this before, because its oil reserves were more easily accessible and as a result, they were they were able to be exploited much earlier than Petrobras. Um, when um, you get to the 90s and industrial policy runs to, uh, all out of favor, there's just this idea: it's like, oh no, the government should stop doing anything, and the market will make the company um, better. Uh, the company w- would then turn into a cash cow. And actually taxes were increased on the company over time on PEMEX. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this made it actually yeah, less productive. And there were some more concentric reforms. Yeah, selling off subsidiary areas. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and uh today, like PEMEX is absurdly taxed. This is one of the things ONLO did when he first came mm-hmm. in. He cut taxes um, to help the company. Uh, and uh, I-, I forgot to mention this last time in the 90s. The Cantorell oil field, which is Mexico's most productive oil field for a long time, dried up. And so to keep Pemex going further, significant investments would need to be made that the company alone wouldn't be able to uh, do. And so production began declining in 2004 and only recently stopped declining under Amlo. Uh, and, you know, to make matters worse, then in, uh, the, there was the energy reform in 2014. And and that caused production and investments to fall a few more, and, and it makes sense because, you know, the company by the '90s is not doing great, and you can see it has serious problems. If you start liberalizing the sector and having it compete with foreign companies, uh, it's uh, it's not going to work out. Petrobras was uh, had with having its boom precisely in the '90s, and in that sense. It got lucky. So because it boomed in the 90s and they opened it up to competition, it actually helped. Um, and that's kind of the story of a lot of Latin America, that you liberalize um, these sectors. This is what happened to Brazil's automotive industry. We talked forever about this, actually. Brazil had a really strong indigenous automotive sector. And in the 90s, they opened it up to competition with imports. It decimated. Ooh, fit. So... And that's what I mean, that free trade was done on ideological and not strategic ground. There's a moment where free trade might actually help. And so countries like the U.S., for instance, and yeah, in Europe, uh, they were initially protectionists. And once their companies were at a point where, you know, we knew that they could compete on a global scale, then you do free trade.
0: Mm-hmm. That's really fascinating. Um, yeah, man, they're all of these... Little national industries that just get crushed in the '90s. Brazil is not alone in that. Um, so yeah. yeah, just just an interesting. I really think it's interesting, like what keeps a company disciplined, how it works. And I think what's fascinating to me about what you just said about Petrobras and PEMEX is that really the logistical challenges that Petrobras faces in getting its offshore oil together make it a highly disciplined company that doesn't sort of like take for granted what it's doing exactly, exactly. and the, it's, it's kind easy of like the accessibility the it's of, kind of
1: like the resource curse within the resource curse, yeah,
0: right right exactly and then then pemex sort of had the opposite thing happen that's really interesting
1: yeah. one uh, one other thing that's really uh fascinating you know pemex is a completely state-owned company petrobras mm-hmm. over time since the 90s the, the government reduced its share of ownership it's still majority in, this is something that has been talked about, whether it's privatizing the company even more, which is, mm-hmm. you know, even some people on the right are, are, are skittish about. Um, but that's important because uh, and as screwed as Pemex is, interestingly, because of that, it seems as though it's more insulated from fluctuations in the global oil trade. Mm-hmm. Um, and so um, I, I mentioned this in my article about Mexico. You look at the rig count in Mexico, and it consistently goes up, even despite things like the COVID-19 pandemic. You look at the rig count numbers here, and there's like it plummeted mm-hmm. when the COVID outbreak uh, began. And like uh, uh, the oil industry, like, like Biden, Lula has actually also complained that Petrobras is buying a lot of its own stock and not investing enough in this, you know, disincentivizes production, which is a, a, a fair point. Pemex doesn't have that problem because it's not a publicly traded company. Petrobras right. has shares on the stock market, mm-hmm. and so there, there are all these incentives that can be malicious.
0: Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's really interesting. It's so different from what we have uh, here in in America. I mean, maybe, maybe one day we can get an episode together and we can talk about what the hell is going on in Venezuela and well, its oh uh, oil company. Because I feel like that. Yeah, you're already laughing. I think that's going to be a wild story, but one we'll have to save for another day. So I'll ask you again, any concluding thoughts before we say goodbye, my friend?
1: Well, I, I think the same thing as last time energy matters.
0: Yep. Energy matters, baby. <laughs> I love it. We can sign up on that. Juan, thanks again for stopping by. People can find the article um, in the show notes along with uh, Juan's Twitter and his LinkedIn. If you want to reach out to him, please do. He's a guy that knows a lot. And until I see you next time, remember to stay sharp, stay strong, and stay radiant, my friends. We will see you next time.